Our names are Jonathan and Jenny. Our scripture reading today is found in Mark 7, 14 through 23. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, I have a life lesson for you. So I was minding my own business, and our senior pastor, who had a study week this past week, preparing for much of the next, what's coming uh, in this year or the next six to eight months, says to me a couple of weeks ago, so Scott, we aren't going to quite get through all of chapter 7 of Mark. Could you just wrap it up for me? Here's where the life lesson part comes in. I said, yes. Then I read the rest of the chapter. So... Um, take away whatever you want from that story, but uh, Pastor, thank you. Uh, um, I don't know if you like icebreakers, but a real typical one, you know, in a, you go out to dinner with some new folks or, or a, a work gathering maybe or a Bible study, and there will be a question, right, to, to get things going. I, I, I have mixed feelings about icebreakers, but there's one icebreaking question I really like. And you need to know this, I'm a little competitive in general, sometimes too competitive. But um, when this question comes up, and understand that the context here, if we don't know each other, uh, I'm the pastor of global outreach here. So when the question for an icebreaker is, what's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten? Let me tell you, this is right in my sweet zone. I am taking this one completely over the fence. So let me take you a quick tour on some of the most unusual things. Notice I didn't say weird that I've eaten. Starting with Thanksgiving once in Africa. This is a warthog. We had a wonderful warthog roast. Let's head a little uh, farther onto the plains of Africa. And this next slide here, you'll see, and this, they're wonderful, cuddly little animals to look at. But if you like giraffes to look at, they're delicious to eat. That's a giraffe steak. Um, let's head a little north, shall we, into the northern hemisphere. Let's not let Europeans off. And again, these are all things I've eaten. A lot of us here probably have had escargot. 
Let's get a little more exotic for some of us, but not for all of us. Indeed, let's head into Asia. Uh, this is a, a, a plate of duck tongues, which I've enjoyed, and they really were quite fabulous. Um, continuing elsewhere in Asia, uh, this is a sea slug soup. It's an acquired taste. <laughs> But it's a beautiful presentation. Um, let's, let's continue a little further. Uh, this was in Beijing. This is a plate of scorpions. And this is the one that usually wins for me in the icebreakers. What's the most unusual thing? I find this scorpion dish usually wins for me. Um, continuing elsewhere in uh, Asia, this is Southeast Asia. This is a plate of tarantulas roasted in soy sauce, which I confess I've actually come to enjoy. Um, so, yeah, okay. Um, just being honest, that's okay, right? Uh, this is from Cambodia. And then um, let's uh, go somewhere else besides Asia. Let's bring it back to North America because we too have our unusual delicacies. Um, this is a Rocky Mountain delicacy. That's all I'm going to say about this. You can ask a neighbor. And then last but not least, this one, um, the exotic Jello. And let me... Let me say this about Jell-O. I read this on a food reviewer's blog. He described it this way. Jell-O, that special food created from boiled animal bones and hide, marinated in garishly colored chemicals, typically served with canned fruit, simulated whipped cream topping, and usually presented in some idiosyncratic mold because Jell-O just tastes so much better when it's in the shape of a windmill or a poodle or your college university logo. Uh, well, as silly as all of that might seem, it's so often that our impressions of external things profoundly shape what we believe about things that are going on internally. Even something as superficial as food choices, that behavior around what we eat can affect the way that we view other people. Because you notice I said those are unusual foods. Those are not weird. But many of us, many times, have thought, that's weird. How do they eat that, whoever they may be? So let me say it again. Often our impressions of external things profoundly shape what we believe about things that are internal. You know, the Bible has a lot to say on this subject. And the passage just read for us by Jenny and Jonathan is just such a passage. And it's in the completion of Mark 7 where we head now. But we have to get there by working backwards. So this morning in our message, we basically have two parts. The first part is every text has a context. And the second part is that every story is part of the story. And we're going to end with so what. And it's a big so what. Because the so what is we're going to commission that couple who just read our scripture passage for us today. So let's begin with every text has a context, and we need to do that by walking backwards into last week's passage to begin. So let me remind us a little bit. Jesus is being questioned by the religious leaders of his day, the very ones that were seen in their society as representing the faith like no other, because they were the elders, they were the Pharisees, the scribes, they were the ones who got it. They had been entrusted 
with this faith from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, David, the prophets, they were the ones entrusted with living this out. They were understood and seen to be the men who got it. We watch them because they know God like no other. They know God's priorities. They know what's most important. This is who we keep our eye on. And what do they do when they come to Jesus? They say to him, how come your guys aren't washing their hands? They're completely consumed with the hygiene laws that have been decreed by the elders. Read it as you see it on the screen. Allow me to read it with us. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Are you remembering this now from last week? The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus summarizes his response to them, beginning in verse 6, by quoting from the great prophet Isaiah. And he begins by addressing his comments to the religious leaders, I love this, standing right in front of him by 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 addressing them as hypocrites, saying Jesus, excuse me, saying Isaiah was right when he prophesied this about you, hypocrites. Now think about this. These, again, are the leaders of their time, right? The disciples have been walking with Jesus for a little while. They, they've seen some things. They've got a good sense of who this man is. Can you imagine? I, I just see Peter, Andrew, John kind of nudging each other. Did you hear what Jesus just said? He started out his conversation by saying, you hypocrites. Peter, pay attention. This is going to be good. (laughs) I don't know what's coming after this, but this is going to be good. But it's not going to be good to be those guys. So let's remind ourselves of what Jesus told them. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to the human traditions. Continuing down into verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Now, please note, the italics on the screen are not divinely inspired. They are mine, and there's no chance of confusing divinity and Scott. Just ask my wife, Nancy. But do note where Jesus is emphasizing his issue is with those who claim to be the most religious of the faithful insiders of Judaism. He says they are following what? Human traditions. Human rules. Do you see it? This is where Jesus is going. He's bringing a corrective. And the focal point of the correction is judgment on the religious leaders. 
Jesus goes further by summarizing to anyone who could hear him. Literally speaking, as you look at the passage, past the religious leaders, the crowds were beginning to move away. These religious leaders had asked the question, and he kind of, I can just see him parting them. And he looks out and calls to the people, and he says, again, Jesus, in verse 14 to 16, again, Jesus called to the crowd and said, listen to me, everyone, understand this, nothing Outside, a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And he will repeat this about defilement again in verse 19. Though this time, he says it with just his disciples gathered around him. Why is he doing this? Why is he challenging tradition? Why is he challenging the religious culture of his day and, frankly, the religious culture of his own faith? He said these things, I believe, because the religious leaders, they had missed the point. The law, they thought the law was a definition about and defined how to do disinfection. In fact, the law was about correction pointing them toward deep affection. Affection for the one the Bible speaks of as the Lord of creation, the maker of heaven and earth, the mighty redeemer, the great physician, and the great I am. Jesus is barrier-breaking. Do you see it? And do you feel the intensity of the moment? He's breaking the barriers tradition has built up people were watching jesus they were watching his followers this passage follows miracle after miracle after miracle in mark they had to be asking who are those men who is this jesus what are they about it and how is it they have so much authority in both the spiritual and the physical realm These were questions I think any of us would ask if we had been alive at the time and we had been watching Jesus. He and his followers were clearly being watched. And Jesus was making sure that what they saw was to the core of his teaching, that is the heart of God itself, so that they would encounter the God who had sent Jesus on God's terms, not the terms established by human tradition or religious custom. Remember I said part one is about the reality that every text has a context. So, so let's recall the biggest context of this text. And I would argue, in fact, of any text we study. And that is that God's work is to be known in this world. He will be known so that all peoples and all places might be reconciled to their Creator. So that God would ultimately receive the worship that he is due from all peoples. Israel had been called to be his ambassadors, his messengers. And this big context is from the very beginning. If we look at the formation of Israel, which starts with a man, Abraham, at the very beginning. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3, I am going to bless you and your descendants so that you may be a blessing to all the families, all the peoples of the earth. He birthed a people for his purpose. 
And he birthed, birthed a nation for his purpose. Last week, Pastor took it, reminded us of ex, excuse me, Exodus 19, 3 to 5, where in that place he says, Israel, I am forming you to be a kingdom of priests. That is, I'm a king. I have a kingdom. I have a realm. You are all to be priests as my followers. A priest simply defined as a mediator between God and between humanity, and humanity with humanity, that we might be reconcilers of all peoples. That's the birth of the nation given a purpose. And when that purpose is strayed from, it's reminded by Isaiah in a very harsh way. In Isaiah 49.6, God reminds His people. He said, you know, it is too small a thing for you to be a servant only to the restore the tribes of Jacob or Israel. No, no, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles, the unwashed ones, us. It is too small a thing to keep this to yourself. The context of our text is in fact the biggest context possible. The God who created humanity for relationship with Him, will be known. And His purpose for these restored relationships, they will be fulfilled. God is on a mission. And His people, therefore, if indeed we are God's people, we are on a mission with Him. Anything less is to be a very disobedient people. Not a very popular term in our society. Anything less is to be disobedient. And in fact, we are not communicating a whole gospel. If we, that is not the gospel we are communicating. Christ has come so that in fact, lives and society might be transformed. That's the biggest context possible. And friends, if I can pause just for a minute, I would be remiss if I didn't invite you to consider this biggest context, to learn more about it in the days ahead as our Perspectives on the World Christian Movement course begins this next Tuesday night. You can talk to some of the folks out in the lobby. In fact, the people you've seen here on the platform so far today of all folks who have been so moved by what God is doing in the world, in part through their taking that course and sharing in that experience, which happens here at Lake that it's shaped who they are because they understand there's a bigger context and we all need to put ourselves in the bigger context. It means that every story, each of our stories is to be a part of the story. Now, now God's people have a culture. Well, actually, we have thousands of them. We're like a tiled mosaic. You know, it's a beautiful big picture made up of little intricate pieces that when you step away, you see the beauty of it all. Now, some of our tiles are a little more cracked and chipped than others, but put together, we make a beautiful thing. And as Christ followers, like Jesus' disciples were back in his day, we too are being watched by others, by both those looking for hypocrisy, but also those who are looking, wondering if maybe this Jesus is actually who he says he is. He is. And maybe there actually is freedom in Christ. Can I meddle for just a moment? 
I have a license to meddle. Come on up to my office after the service. I'll show it to you. Who's watching you? Which of your neighbors? Or maybe your spouse? Or your children? Or your parents? Or your employees? Or your boss? Who's watching you? And what conclusions are they drawing about what it means to follow Christ, to live in obedience to his word and his purposes as they observe you and your life? The inner workings of our heart and so subsequently our external behaviors can be really complicated, yes? <laughs> Many years ago I discovered a, I called a, a concept map of sorts. Uh, missionaries, pastors, counselors, social workers, we use lots of questions to help deconstruct folks to understand. Questions like, why do you do what you do? <laughs> or, or help me understand why you acted like that. Or we make observations like, well, based on your actions, I can only perceive that what is really important to you is X. These are questions that help us decode people and individuals. Well, this map I'm going to show you by Biola, uh, former Biola University anthropologist Lloyd Quass has been really helpful for me in, de- in mapping some of what we do and who we are. It's basically built on a layered approach that there are four main layers that make up who we are, beginning with the most external one coming up on screen here, which is about our behaviors. It's the thing that's most obvious. It's the biggest, most observable part of who we are and what we do. Secondly, underneath that comes our values. They fit into who we are. Our values are underlying our behaviors. And then beneath our values come our beliefs. And our beliefs inform those values. If you can keep that on screen for me, please. And then at the very core, you'll have to trust me on this apparently, at the very core comes our worldview. Oh, it's getting there. Keep going. Um, At the very core is our worldview. Externally, that brown layer, thank you. The brown layer is our behaviors. So in this case, it's hand washing, right? It's a behavior that's done. That doesn't tell me too much with profundity about a person. But below that, that comes out of a value. In this case, it was probably cleanliness. And below that layer is belief. Why? Because we believe that good hygiene benefits myself and others. So I practice hand washing. And at that core worldview, I think would be the idea that hand washing helps us stay healthy. Therefore, that's productive for society. But the most obvious layer is the behavioral layer. And it's often the one that confuses us and doesn't actually tell us what's at the worldview. Consider Jesus' words again. He condemns the religious leaders because they're so concerned with the external behaviors of Jesus and his men. And they fail to consider the heart motivation, the worldview. They can't see it. Jesus states it twice in our passage, verse 15 to the crowd, and then in 18 and 20 to his men, his disciples. He says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside defiles them? For it doesn't go into the heart. It goes into the stomach 
Continuing on. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So if every story is to be a part of the story, what do we do with this, Scott? Well, let me start with the question. What is the outside world seeing in our story? What do they see in us as Christians? What do they see in Christianity? Jesus says here in Mark 7, verses 20 and 23, pretty much what Quas map told us. What we are inside will spill out toward the outside, whether good or evil, whether life-giving or life-destroying. And behaviors, behaviors are the most superficial layer of we complex beings. But they will not be the thing that ultimately reshapes us at our values, beliefs, and worldview level behaviors will not change us on the inside and if you don't believe me go check your new year's resolution list we're 13 days in how you doing it's from the inside out not the outside in we need heart surgery friends if we're going to truly be transformed and our world needs heart surgery Looking again at that list in 27, 21, and 22, these are the very sins that break down families, tribes, clans, cities, and nations. They are societal sins. They raise themselves to that level where they break whole societies. Jesus is inviting us, you, me, all of us, to be free from these things. And there's another way except we also know this way has not yet been fully realized. We look around us and we see this stuff. And we say this gospel has not fully penetrated this world, and in fact, not even fully our hearts. Paul wrote this to the church in Rome some time ago. You can read this on screen. Some time ago being about 2,000 years ago. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And yet... Apparently, God's people still have barriers, barriers that we've created that separate us from others. Sometimes they might be traditions and rules, rules of our own making. Maybe it comes out of our denominations. Maybe they come out of our home cultures. Maybe they come out of our theological schools. Things which to those outside of our faith, they must look foreign, confusing, and some of them downright ridiculous. And in fact, these things often have so little to do with anything related to discovering who Jesus is or finding forgiveness through him or experiencing freedom from bondage. Paul wrote these words to a church in Colossae when they were developing their own traditions, not to unlike the Pharisees' traditions that Jesus spoke about. 
He wrote, since you died with Christ, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you still submit to its rules? Do not handle this. Do not taste that. Do not touch this. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Even the early Jesus followers, like those Pharisees, were developing their own traditions, their own religious customs, loading them on the people, and many of them made it so hard for the others to see through that to Jesus at the center of the worldview. And Paul has admonished them for being superficial. He says, look to the heart of our faith. That's Jesus at the fixed center. Put him at the center of our interior life. And as a consequence, when others see our external life, they will see transformed lives. They will not be drawn to our religiosity, but to the new life of this Jesus who is transformed. Today, a third of our planet still lives in cultures beyond Jesus. That is, he's completely unknown in those places. And tragically, in some cases, like many places I think of in the Muslim world particularly, it's not because of the internal, it's because they've seen the externals. And those externals of the Christians were not pointing to the centrality of Jesus. How's that ever going to change? How are two and a half billion people who right now are beyond the reach of the gospel, how are they going to come see Jesus as the center of everything we are and everything we believe? Well, Paul has some thoughts on this too. It was on his third missionary journey. He planted a church in Europe in a place called Macedonia. By now he'd learned much in his life and he was, he was really blending his theology and missiology into a powerful model. We read this in Philippians 2. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death even death on a cross. The messenger is, in fact, the message. Too often, Christ's message has gotten lost in the messengers. Outside observers, the, the, the watchers, if you will, they can be confused by our external trappings, our denominational traditions, our cultural heritage, the languages we speak even, and a thousand other things. And because of that, the message is not heard. It's not perceived. It's not received. And as a result, can we just face the brutal fact? Billions of souls continue to wait for news of a Savior in a way that they can understand it, that they can receive it, and that they can learn to follow Jesus, the one Scripture calls the hope of nations. Well, today we have the privilege of continuing to find our role in the story 
and putting our story really afresh and anew into this great context two ways. And the first is a personal way. We can do this by recommitting ourselves to put Christ at the center of our life message. Recommit to, or first time commit to his reality permeating every layer of who we are, our beliefs, our values, and ultimately our behaviors, so that those who watch us would observe Jesus more and less of us.